Shalom and welcome to a journey of enlightenment, inspiration, and connection. You are listening to the Bear Sheva podcast, a beacon of light to the World Noahide community. I'm your host, Tani Burton, and I'm delighted to be your guide on this journey, broadcasting from the heart of the world, Jerusalem, the eternal city. Together, we'll dive deep into the wellsprings of Torah, unearthing timeless truths that resonate to the core of our existence. So get ready to enrich your life, expand your horizons, and embrace the boundless possibilities that lie within the vast expanse of Torah wisdom. This is the Bear Sheva Podcast. Welcome back. In this episode, we will be exploring the Rambam's third principle of faith, which is the non-corporeality, non-physicality of God. We will come away with an understanding of how this makes Torah and Judaism distinct from other faiths, particularly Christianity. We will learn how to approach the Torah's use of anthropomorphism, because it's certainly not literal in Torah. And we will discover how the fact that God is not physical is connected to his being infinite. And then finally, how God's infiniteness allows us to be close to him. If you're just joining us, make sure to catch up on our previous episodes by clicking below if you're on YouTube or checking out our podcast list. You might wonder why we need a list of faith principles. We're in the middle of a podcast series on the 13 principles of faith, as formulated by the Rambam. We can ask, what is the need for a list of faith precepts? Wouldn't it be enough to scour the entire corpus of the Torah, both its written and oral facets, pick out the specifics of Jewish belief? Sure. Just learn Biblical Hebrew and Aramaic with a smattering of Greek and begin making your way through the 63 tractates of the Babylonian Talmud, which in the Vilna edition, has 2,711 double-sided pages, including about three pages of commentary per page. And then, of course, you'll want to double back and study the Jerusalem Talmud, the works of the Geonim, and the Rishonim. The Rambam and his contemporaries have made it much more convenient for you. What they've done is they've distilled the central tenets of Torah belief into short lists so that you can utilize their contents as a pair of lenses that are perfectly calibrated to allow each individual's soul to perceive faith accurately. And also for us to have that as an intellectual holding. We can ask, what is the difference between trying to distill the faith precepts of Torah and the concept of orthodoxy? Orthodoxy, or correct beliefs, which is what it means. In other words, just to remind ourselves, each of the 13 principles of faith has to be considered in its own right, but it functions as part of a package of articulated beliefs that a Torah-committed person has to integrate. This list of precepts is the orthodoxy of Torah and Judaism. Now, what is orthodoxy? Well, the word orthodoxy is derived from two Greek words, ortho, which means correct, 
and doxa, which means belief or opinion. It wasn't until the mid-15th century that it was used to refer to theological opinions or faith. So the Rambam would not have used this word. In fact, the Greek church was not called Orthodox until the year 1772. Traditional Torah-observant Jews were also not referred to as Orthodox until the mid-19th century, and it was a type of epithet coined by their co-religionists who were keen on adapting Judaism and Jewish life to the modernizing trends in Europe at the time. Apparently, the phrase Orthodox Judaism appeared first in print in 1853 and Orthodox Jew in 1889. It's not so long ago. The effort made by the Rambam and others to distill the fundamental beliefs required of a Torah-observant person gives us a glimpse as to how vast the textual material that comprises the canon of Torah is and how difficult it is with so many ideas and opinions from generations of scholars to identify and select a core of beliefs that have to remain immutable in order for Judaism and Torah to retain their integrity. And yet, it's not enough to read about it and say you believe in it. What we need to be doing is taking the time to consider the primary textual sources that these ideas are based upon and to contemplate them and allow them to percolate in our minds. Now, let's take a look at the third principle of the 13 principles of faith. The third principle, according to the Rambam, is the belief that God is completely non-corporeal, non-physical, meaning that he does not have a body, nor the physical force that a physical body would expend. Therefore, says the Rambam, he doesn't experience movement, rest, or anything that affects physical beings. He quotes a passage from the Talmud in Tractate Chagiga, where the Gemara states that when it comes to God himself, there are no such things as sitting or standing or physical descriptions such as front or back, which Rambam explains to mean composition or dissolution, connectedness or disconnectedness. Basically, nothing that happens to physical beings affects God in any way, because he is completely non-physical. The Rambam references as a source text a verse from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, where God states, To what will you compare me that I should be equal, says the Holy One. Now, Isaiah chapter 40 has five basic themes. The end of Israel's exile and forgiveness, contrasting the illusory power of nations with the infinite power of God, the willful ignorance and abandonment of God by the nations, and then there's an analogy drawn between the fragility of physical idols and the fragility of mighty nations. Just like an idol is merely a physical object, the work of a craftsman that has no inherent power and will eventually disintegrate, the most powerful governments and nations are fragile, unlike God. And finally, the fact that God is all-knowing means that on one hand, he can support the weak and vulnerable, and on the other hand, no one can escape his judgment. 
So now back to our verse. To what or whom can you compare God? There's a very interesting explanation given by the Malbim on this verse. Let's take a, a minute to introduce ourselves to him. The Malbim was Rabbi Meir Leibush ben Yechiel Michal Wieser, a prominent figure in Orthodox Judaism. He was born in 1809 in Voloshysk in the Ukraine and faced many challenges, including being orphaned as a child. His stepfather, Rabbi Leib of Olashisk, provided him with a strong education, and the Malbim's brilliance shone through as he moved frequently, serving as a rabbi in many different communities and earning a reputation for his vast knowledge of secular sciences and history. From 1838 until 1845, he served as rabbi in, in Russian and later in Kempen until 1859. In 1859, he assumed the role of the chief rabbi in Bucharest in Romania, where he faced strong opposition from the upper class and educated Jews who sought to modernize Jewish practices. Despite the opposition and threats of imprisonment, the Malbim remained unwavering in his commitment to Orthodox Judaism, defending its traditions and its practices. His life journey continued as he served in Lunchitz, in Kherson, and in Mogilev. However, his staunch support for Orthodox Judaism often drew resentment and opposition, especially from the wealthy class. And in 1879, he faced a setback when the governor of Vilna opposed his appointment as rabbi due to his prior expulsion from Mogilev. The Malbim declined an offer, in fact, this is interesting, to become the chief rabbi of the Orthodox community in New York City. That's a position that you couldn't get today because of laws of separation in church and state. So he could have been in New York. Ultimately, he passed away on Rosh Hashanah in 1879 in Kiev, leaving behind a remarkable legacy as a defender of Orthodox Judaism, despite the challenges and opposition he faced throughout his remarkable life. Now, the Malbim explains, you can't compare God to anyone or anything. Even if you attribute some quality to God that makes it seem like he resembles that thing, God would not resemble it. So we can ask the question, how are we to understand all the anthropomorphism expressed in the verses of the Torah? And there's so many verses that describe God as father, or a consuming fire, a man of war, or simply descriptions like mighty or dwelling in heaven. Now we must understand that if these terms appear in the Tanakh, it's because God himself decided that it would be that way. He expressed himself in that way. Rambam notes that there's no problem with anthropomorphic terms per se, as long as you understand their function, which is to give us something to grasp. In the Gemara in Brachot, on page 31b, Chazal tell us that the Torah speaks in the language of people because it's intended for people. But language is symbolic. It's a vehicle for conveying ideas. But don't confuse the medium and the message. So what do we do with these terms? What do we do with the anthropomorphisms? The Malbim says, voicing God as it were, when I say those things, I do so to correspond with the limits of your understanding. God has expressed himself to us 
in analogies because our finite minds require a reference point in the physical world in order to understand spiritual concepts. So we'll have verses describing God as if he has a body, as if he behaves like a physical being. But let's review that verse again. To what will you compare me that I should be equal, says the Holy One. Now the last two words in English are the key to understanding the first idea of God's incomparability. Says the Holy One. The word in Lashon HaKodesh, in Biblical Hebrew, for holy, is kadosh. What does kadosh mean? It translates freely as holy, but it actually means separated, completely distinct from everything else. In Torah terms, the betrothal of a woman to a man is called kiddushin, which means that this woman has been separated from the rest of humanity designated only for this man. No other marriage between this woman and anybody else is possible. She's separated. The Malbim explains that we might find anthropomorphic descriptions of God in the Tanakh. In fact, we find them everywhere. But in truth, God is kadosh, is holy. He is completely distinct, separate, beyond all physicality, all comparison. You can't compare me to anything, says God, because I have no image. No appearance whatsoever. So much of the world's great art is dedicated to the physical representation of spiritual concepts or greatness, whether it be the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel or the giant statue of Lincoln in the Lincoln Memorial. The Colossus of Rhodes was a massive statue of the Greek titan Helios, erected on the island of Rhodes in the 3rd century BCE. It was built as a way of saying thank you to the so-called sun god after the Rhodians survived an attack on the island waged by Macedonia. It stood at a staggering height of approximately 100 feet. Doesn't sound like such a big deal anymore. But it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The statue symbolized the power and the grandeur of the city of Rhodes. However, despite it being one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, this structure's existence was very short-lived, as it was toppled by an earthquake just a few decades after its construction, 54 years to be exact. Now, the fate of the Colossus of Rhodes serves as a powerful reminder of the transience of even the most impressive and mighty creations, showcasing how time and natural forces can diminish and ultimately erase the legacies of even the most powerful. Think about it. The Twin Towers of the World Trade Center were both 13 times the height of the Colossus of Rhodes. And they were the most prominent building in what was the financial heart of the United States. That lasted for 30 years until that awful day of 9-11, which is a day I personally will never forget. Today, in the state of Gujarat in India, stands the Statue of Unity. It's 597 feet in height. It's almost six times the height of the Colossus of Rhodes and six times the height of the new Colossus, the Statue of Liberty. 
It's named for Vallabhai Patel, who was the first deputy prime minister of India. It's enormous. When you see something like that, I imagine that it's hard to think about God when you have something like that in your line of vision. We can now understand how Torah differs from Christianity on this point. In exploring Rambam's third principle of faith, we also find an opportunity to understand the differences between Christianity and Judaism regarding the use of statues and representations. While Rambam asserts the non-corporeality of God, emphasizing his complete transcendence from the physical realm, Christianity takes a different approach. Christians interpret the biblical prohibition against idolatry differently, viewing statutes and representations as aids to worship rather than objects of worship themselves. They see these physical depictions as symbolic representations, reminders of the divine and the sacred. For Christians, the concept of the incarnation, the belief in God becoming human, underscores the compatibility of the divine and the physical. So you'll have religious art and statues that are seen as ways to depict and commemorate the divine and are not considered idolatrous. That, of course, is completely antithetical to Torah law, which would regard the concept of incarnation as completely idolatrous. In general, and this is how it's stated in the Shulchan Aruch, Torah law forbids any representation of the divine or the divine realm, including angels. And certainly the celestial bodies, since these have been objects of worship throughout history. Eventually we'll address the issue of idolatry. But for now, going back to the point of the Malbim, he's implying that even the most magnificent, breathtaking, two- and three-dimensional works of art that are intended to capture the spiritual in a physical form might be seen as great human achievements, but they actually represent the failure of the finite human mind to grasp the divine. The anthropomorphic language of the Torah is only a vehicle for learning about God's attributes or about the way his providence guides worldly events. There's also a more sophisticated, modern fascination with massive objects, a kind of spirituality about big things. You'll sometimes hear scientifically oriented people speak of their experience of smallness in the face of a massive universe, how they realize that they are a mere insignificant speck of dust, living on what Carl Sagan called the pale blue dot, feeling humbled in the face of the vastness of the universe and the small space that they take up. Now, this level of receptivity is nice, but it stops short of where we need to be. It's really just more preoccupation with corporeality. But this principle of faith in the non-corporeality of God is not that God is big. He's infinite. Infinite means that he can and does concern himself with even the most infinitesimal level of creation and especially with each individual person. It means that there is meaning in everything that we do. 
and that even if we are dwarfed by planetary systems in size, we are in relationship with him in a way that they are not. We are important to him. Jupiter is a dead system. You could predict where this gigantic gas ball will be until the end of time if you can work out the math. But a human being is a living, unpredictable system capable of connecting to God, serving him, and partnering with him to perfect his world. In this episode, we delved into the Rambam's third principle of faith, which is the non-corporeality, non-physicality of God. We explored the profound concept of God's non-physical nature and its connection to his infiniteness. By understanding that God cannot be confined to a physical form, we can develop a deeper closeness to him. Throughout our discussion, we examined the significance of the incomparability of Hashem, of God, and the role of anthropomorphism in our understanding of God. We highlighted the distinction between the Torah's use of anthropomorphic language and the literal interpretations of such descriptions, which is not intended by the Torah. This exploration allowed us to grasp the essence of God's non-corporeal nature more profoundly. We also emphasize the importance of the 13 principles of faith as a package of articulated beliefs that form the orthodoxy, as it were, of Torah and Judaism. These principles provide us with a lens through which we can perceive and navigate the vast textual material of the Torah. In our next episode, we will continue our explanation of the 13 principles of faith. Join us as we delve into the fourth principle, which is God's eternality. We will unravel the timeless nature of our Creator and delve into the concept of eternity and its profound implications for our relationship with God. Don't miss out on this enlightening journey of faith and knowledge. Tune in next time as we uncover more insights and gain a deeper understanding of our beliefs. See you in the next episode. Thank you for joining us on the Bear Sheva Podcast. The podcast is proudly presented to you by Sukkot Shalom B'nai Noach. As a global Noahide community, Sukkot Shalom is deeply rooted in the timeless values of Torah. We're dedicated to nurturing growth, fostering unity, and spreading the light of Torah to every corner of the world. For more enriching content and to be a part of our vibrant community, visit our website at www.sukkotshalom-benenoach.com. Remember to follow or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and leave us a comment with the topics you'd love to explore in future episodes. See you next time.